Well, election night. We've heard a lot of promises. The good news tonight is that the new covenant is founded on better promises. Amen. Amen. Right? So that's what we're going to celebrate tonight. Um, promises that have been made and kept. As a matter of fact, um, one of my favorite verses is in uh, one of Paul's letters to Corinthians where he says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yea and amen in Jesus. And God has made a lot of promises. If you go through uh, the Old Testament, there's a lot, lot of promises. I actually have a, a cool little book at home called The I Wills of God. It's basically just a collection of everywhere God says, I will. It's actually worth looking up sometime. If you're like, I don't know what to study in the Bible. Maybe you've read through the Bible and you want to just do a topical study. That's a good topical study. The, all the I wills of God. They're not all pleasant, by the way. Um, some of them are threats. Some of them are warnings for people to turn. But they're also these wonderful promises. Um, okay. So tonight, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. We're actually going to get into chapter 9. As I've said before, sometimes the chapter breaks aren't at the best place. Uh, this is one of those times, and um, we're going to dip into one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible at the very end of what we read tonight, but we're going to talk about it again next week. Um, you know, one of my favorite hymns is by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, called Approach My Soul, the Mercy Seat, where Jesus answers prayer. And it has this great uh, verse that goes this way. Be thou, talking to God, be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Martin Luther used to say, that if the devil ever comes to you and condemns you and tells you that you're a miserable piece of crud, don't try to argue with him. Instead, say, yes, devil, that's true, but there's more truth that you might have forgotten. Jesus lived and died in my place. So don't come talking to me. Take it up with him. And that's what the new covenant is all about. Matter of fact, the, the way this passage starts um, verse 1 says, now the point of what we are saying. So here we are, chapter 8 is the heart of the letter of the Hebrews. Here's the heart of the letter to the Hebrews. Let's read it. Chapter 8, we'll start at verse 1. You follow along. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. And remember last week we talked about the priest after the order of Melchizedek and how that's superior <coughs> to the Levitical priests. And now he wants to say, and the fact is, the point is, we have such a priest. It's not just some theological abstraction. Isn't it nice to think about the differences between the different priesthoods? No, the point is, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, or the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest, meaning the earthly and heavenly, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, 
he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, or we might have heard it called the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So when God gave the law to Moses, now we see that actually part of what that involved was God showing Moses the true heavenly tabernacle and then saying, build an earthly version of that. That's what he's saying. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it, this new covenant, is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, meaning his people, when he says, and then he quotes a long passage here from the prophet Jeremiah. And here's what's interesting to think about. Jeremiah and also Ezekiel that we read about sprinkling clean water. Do you know when they prophesied? They both prophesied before the exile. They both are called to tell God's people, judgment is coming. You're going to be sent into exile for disobedience to the Lord, but it's not the end. And it's through these two pre-exilic prophets that God begins to open up this glorious promise of a new covenant. Because the first covenant couldn't change the heart. The new covenant is all about the heart. Listen to what Jeremiah says that Hebrews quotes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he, meaning God, makes the first one obsolete. And so what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then he goes through a whole bunch of that. But jump down to verse 6. Um, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that means the, kind of past the first um, curtain, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, again behind this inner curtain, only the high priest goes, and he only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is the one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, these are all Old Testament things, sanctify or set us apart for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God. Now, there's a lot there, right? And, and particularly if you don't understand a lot about the Old Testament, I'm going to try and, and, and help you understand this. But let's pray first. Lord, we do thank you that we have a new covenant. We thank you, Lord, that even though your people failed and broke the covenant, we thank you, Lord, that that was not the end of the story. We thank you for your dogged perseverance and for sending your son who made sacrifice by his own blood to secure eternal salvation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have such a high priest. We have him. It's the heart of what the writer of Hebrews wants to say. You could say the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is superior. And as we've been going through the book, there have been a number of ways the writer has been trying to tell these people that Jesus is superior. He's superior to all other words that God has spoken. All these other ways that God has spoken, chapter 1 says, now God has spoken in Jesus, the final word. He's the true promised land. Everything that the promised land was about finds its fulfillment in him. True rest. He's superior to the Sabbath day of rest because he's what the Sabbath day of rest points to. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the Old Testament priests. He is fully God. But he is also one who has been made like us in every way so that he could sympathize, empathize with our weakness, but do more than empathize, live and die in our place as our representative, the God-man. And the heart of it all is that we have, we have him. It's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and having Jesus. And the, what the Hebrews need to know is that they have him. You remember, they're about to endure more intense persecution. Whatever's going on tonight, whether your life is going well, whether your life is not going well, the most important thing is, do you have such a high priest who can empathize, who has made purification for sins? The whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show you this Jesus in fact, it's the point of the whole 
Bible. But to understand why that matters, we have to talk a little bit about this thing called the covenant, the old covenant and the new covenant, right? So here, what is a covenant? A covenant is a particular kind of relationship. It's very different than a contract. The main difference between a covenant and a contract is a contract is something that's negotiated, where both parties give and take until they come to an agreement. And then they shake hands on it, and there you go. A covenant is different. A covenant is always between people with a power differential. And the one who has more power, the sovereign one, whether it was true of Old Testament kings or God, the sovereign would lay out the terms. Contracts are negotiated, but God makes a covenant. And the heart of the covenant, which is one of my professors used to say, it's a living love bond. The heart of the covenant is I will be your God. It's a promise, and you will be my people. And it's a promise that has implications for the way God's people should live. You should live like that's true. You should live based upon that promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is the heart of the covenant. In other words, like I try to say a lot, because I know a lot of you grew up in Christian churches where whether you were told this explicitly, maybe this is the subtext you heard. We're saved to serve. In other words, a lot of people think the, 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 the sunum bonum, like the highest goal of life, is to be God's little worker bees. But in fact, even actually the last verse that I read, Hebrews 9, 14 says, that's impossible. You can't serve God unless your conscience has been cleansed. Unless the reality of what the new covenant is about has become true for you and has become bedrock for you. God created us to marry himself to us. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 5 that God created marriage to teach us about his love. He didn't look out and say, look at this quaint custom that these uh, you know, bipeds uh, like to indulge in. I can work with that. I can make something out. That's not what it, no. God created marriage to teach us about his love. It's not the only way he teaches us about his love, but that's what the Bible says. So the, the point is, God made us to be in this rich, beautiful relationship with him. And things went wrong, but God never backed down from that goal. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, he begins to reveal, even actually in the Garden of Eden, when sin enters the world, he makes the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, and he says, I will put enmity, warfare, between you and the serpent. In other words, Adam and Eve said, we're not going to be on God's side. We're going to join in with the serpent and oppose God and his kingdom. And God says, I'm not going to let that alliance stand. I'm going to break it by my grace, and I'm going to switch the teams. I'm going to put warfare where you tried to put peace, and I'm going to make peace where there should be warfare by sending the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And that promise is the theme of the Bible. The great drama of the whole Old Testament is, will God keep that promise? And there are threats, like any great drama, there are great threats to this promise. Do you know what they are? 
Well, there are external threats and internal threats. External threats, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, who seek to crush and destroy God's people so that the promised seed, the Messiah, would never come. The Bible sets it out this way. These aren't just people fighting people. It's a cosmic battle to stop God's promise from coming to fruition. But there's another threat to God's promise, and it's his own people's disobedience. In some ways, you can say that causes God more heartache and turmoil. And when you get to the prophet Jeremiah, there are places where God reveals to the prophet Jeremiah that he's torn and he doesn't know what to do. And you might think, well, how can God be like that? I don't know. But that's what God reveals. He says, what am I going to do with you? You deserve to be destroyed because you sinned against me. You've prostituted yourselves to all these other gods. But how, how can I give you up? I love you so dearly. Right? And in Jeremiah, God opens up his heartbreak. I will send you into exile. I will seek to break you from your idols. You know, it's interesting. None of the prophets after the exile talk about the issue of idolatry as a problem anymore. The exile really did do something, but it didn't finally solve the problem. So there is this old covenant. God sets up, it, actually when he gives the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments, all that, he gave God, Moses so much more than just the Ten Commandments, okay? That's the problem with that movie, you know, as he comes down, you know, with the tablets. For one thing, the tablets are one copy for God and one copy for man. That's why there's two tablets. It's not five on one side and five on the other side like the, the, the movie. Sorry, it's not that way. Because when you cut a covenant, you always give a copy to each of the parties. That's the imagery. And it's why there's a copy that goes in the Ark of the Covenant. And then you have this beautiful picture of God and the blood covering the Ark of the Covenant, covering the law that accuses us and shows us how we failed to live up to what God has called us to be. But God is providing through the sacrificial system this great promise and a picture that I will deal with what keeps us from being able to be married. You've basically, my, my people, you've married yourself to all these other gods, all these other idols. I want you for myself, but you keep running after all these other lovers. But I am going to do what's necessary, not just to cover your sin, but to change your heart. And that's the heart of the new covenant. See what's interesting, when you look here at the old covenant, you realize that there's actually, it's new, but it's not totally new, this new covenant. As a matter of fact, it talks here about, you know, in Jeremiah, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. So the first thing is there's continuity because it's the same people. It's, it's the same people. It's not like he's discarded his people Israel and now he's going to go get some other. No, he's still going to make this new covenant with the people who broke the old covenant. So that's one thing. There's continuity there. But there's also continuity when he says, I will be your God 
and they shall be my people. That's in verse 10 of Hebrews 8. So you see, that's the same covenant. But what's new about this new covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, God told his people to write his law on their hearts. Never does he tell them that he will write his law on their hearts. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is not totally new. It's a newness of intensification. It's not new in content. It's still the same law. If you want to love me, and how, it has to be, of course, because the law is an expression of God's character, which never changes. So the idea that you shouldn't lie because truth matters in God's countercultural kingdom, the idea that you should respect your neighbor's property, the idea that you shouldn't murder, all these things that are conditions for community to flourish, like they don't change. But what changes is now God is going to take away our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, like Ezekiel says, move us to obey his commands. Write the law on our hearts. Now, the Old Covenant was helpful in this. It showed that you couldn't just walk up to God flippantly and just expect that he would welcome you. The Old Covenant and all the sacrificial system did a very good job of saying, look, sin is serious and it's real. And you don't just get to enter into a relationship with God like he's your big buddy in the sky. It is one of the problems with American Christianity. We could use a little more of that kind of sober reverence, honestly. And there is something about reading the Old Testament that really helps you remember, oh, who are we dealing with here? It actually makes the gospel all the more beautiful when you remember who God is and what he's like. And then it's all the more astonishing that he actually would make a new covenant with these people who had spit in his face. But it gives us hope, right? Because we do the same. And the character of God has never changed. It's never changed. So you have this, this old covenant that was teaching us that a relationship with God is, in, is what you were made for, but there's a serious problem. But he's going to make a new covenant because the old covenant didn't work. You know why the old covenant, how we know the old covenant didn't work? We know the old covenant didn't work because the priests had to go make sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And that's when we get here into chapter 9. He says, you know, okay, there was all these regulations, all this stuff. It was all a picture to show you that God was committed to reconciling sinful people to himself. So he gives us this picture. They go through all this elaborate ritual but God is going to send the true priest to go into the true heavenly place, the heavenly temple. See, the earthly temple is just a picture. It's just a picture. We needed one who could go into the true presence of God on our behalf. And we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. The new covenant. What's, what's, what's new about the new covenant? 
As I said, it's not completely new, but there is something new. I said the one thing, it's the transformation of the heart, the spirit writing on the law, the law on our heart is a new thing, right? But there's also the idea that there's power to change the heart. That's never promised in the old covenant, but it's promised in the new covenant. I, I love this uh, little hymn by John Barrage. John Barrage, he was kind of an eccentric Anglican, 18th century preacher, English preacher. He said this one time, run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Now, do you understand what the point there? The old covenant said, do this and you will live. The new covenant says, I've made you alive. Now live like this. As a matter of fact, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commands. The Puritans used to say, the law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus drives us back to the law, not so that we could earn God's smile by our obedience, because our obedience is never good enough to do that, even after we become Christians. No, we're driven back to the law to give us some kind of shape to what love looks like. You know, you ever been in a relationship with somebody where you just have no idea what would please them? Like you really want to do something that they would enjoy, but they never tell you? That's really frustrating. God is not like that. If you're married to God, you don't have to wonder how he wants you to live. Isn't that amazing? It's good. That's actually good. It's good. So the transformation of the heart, this new, the new covenant. So the run and work, the law demands. The law says do this. And what it says to do is what we need to do. But it doesn't give us any power. Commands do not bring power with them. But the gospel, the gospel actually says even more and changes us. Because the only thing that can change the heart is not God telling us what to do, but Jesus living and dying in our place. It breaks the heart, the stony heart, and it gives us a heart of flesh. Now, let me just jump ahead here. The new covenant gives us all we need. All we need. Several ways this is pictured. It says in verse 12, our sins will be remembered no more. That's a pretty amazing promise by an omnipotent, omniscient God. Our sins will be remembered no more. Real forgiveness. There will be no teachers. You're like, oh, that's good. Maybe you guys you know, all in college, you wish there were no teachers. Well, what you need to remember is in the Old Testament, the, the teachers, the priests, were mediators between God and man. And so what this is speaking about is that Jesus now will be the one who connects us to God. We don't need to go through other teachers. He will be our God. We will be our people. The new covenant really is new and improved because it's based not on the promise of what is to come, but on the reality of what's already happened. As we come close this up, I, I want to invite you to cast your eyes on Jesus, 
the mediator of the new and better covenant. Think about this. He bypassed the whole earthly system. You know, the, the blood of animals could never make a person righteous before God. Think about this. It wasn't enough that your sin be paid for. You also needed to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. There was no way that the blood of animals could give you credit for doing that. It couldn't possibly do that. We needed one made like us in every way. Jesus, fully man, fully God, who would live and die in our place because we need more than just forgiveness. We need to be beautiful in God's sight. You know, we sang it about in that hymn, in his robes, I'm perfect beauty. That's an amazing line. Actually, when we were recording that song, I remember Santa McCracken, she was singing that. She's like, is that really what the hymn says or did you make that up? Because like we talk about that all the time, but is that what people have always believed? Like, you know, that's what William Williams wrote. He's this great Welsh hymn writer. And he wrote that in the 1700s. In your robes, in your robes, not I have perfect beauty, but I am perfect beauty. That's this righteousness, this beauty that's been given to us because Jesus lived and died in the perfect salvation. The sacrificial system could never make us righteous, right? And to, to basically just, what he's, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, if you're putting your hope in these animal sacrifices, or you want to go back to that, because it's safer to become Jewish again and not be a Christian now that the persecution is coming, the problem is it's like reading a great novel and never reading the last chapter. You know, my wife and I, have you guys watched Friday Night Lights? Is that too old a reference for y'all? We loved it so much that we never watched the last episode because we didn't want it to end. We still haven't watched the last episode. Yeah. So now we got, we'll have to go back. Now it's not on Netflix anymore. So now I got to like find it at Goodwill or something. Um, yeah. But that, isn't that crazy? You're like, how could you do that? And that's what the writer Hebrews is saying. How could you have been going along with God through the sacrificial system, it's teaching you, teaching you, teaching you about God's provision, and then God's provision comes in Jesus, and you're like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool here. I'm just going to stay here. That's, that's what it's like. Cast your eyes on Jesus. Jesus did the work, and he inaugurated a new and a better covenant. Now, it's, it's a little strange, and this is where the, the chapter goes next, the idea that Jesus died and he had to die for this new covenant to take place. And it's this image that a will is never goes into effect until the person dies. Jesus dies and that sets this legal covenant into motion. And you remember, Jesus is very aware of this. Do you remember what he says at the Last Supper? This is my blood of the what? New covenant. Like Jesus knew very well that he was establishing the new covenant with his death. The new covenant, it says, is founded on better promises. Think about it this way. Jesus is the one who makes promises to his father in the new covenant, not just to us. Jesus said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my father. Has that ever encouraged you? That should encourage you greatly. Jesus says, my whole reason for living 
What gives me the greatest joy is to do the will of my Father. And what did his Father call him to do? To die in the place of sinners. And he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I will fulfill the promise I have made. You can read actually in Psalm 22. It talks about Jesus is going to be the one who will stand up in the sanctuary and say, I have kept the vow that I made. And now I have gotten the spoils of doing the work you called me to do. It's a pretty remarkable thing to say because Psalm 22 is about being crucified, about being executed. And how is there anything after the execution? But Psalm 22 goes on because it's prophesying about Jesus. The the crucifixion wasn't the end. He's resurrected and he receives all of us as the fruit of this work that he's done. The new covenant is based on better promises. It's based on the promise that God the Father and God the Son made to each other. It's also founded on better promises because we live after the promises have been made and kept. It's one thing for somebody to make a promise to you, but how solid is the promise when it's been kept? And then you look back at it. That's what we have in Christ. He kept the law and he kept his promise to die in the place of lawbreakers. The new covenant makes better promises to us. And then we'll close with this. Jesus continues to serve as a priest. See, right now, Jesus is still operating his priestly function. He appears in the presence of God on our behalf, pleading his wounds before God, saying, don't forget about them. Those are the, I died for them. It's not like God is opposed to him. They're in unity on this. But but it's this tangible picture. You know, one of the most beautiful places of this is when Stephen gets stoned. Do you know the story about Stephen? He's one of the first deacons. In the book of Acts, he starts preaching about Jesus, and this crowd gets riled up, and they start stoning him. You know the significance of that? Stoning is the penalty for blasphemy. So they say, you've blasphemed, and you need to die. And as he's being executed for blasphemy, it's not just a mob, it's execution for blasphemy, the heavens are opened and he sees Jesus. And do you know how he sees Jesus? He sees Jesus standing. It's the only place in the Bible where Jesus is spoken of as standing. Do you know the significance of it? Standing is the posture of a defense attorney. He's standing as the crowd is condemning him, saying, you're a blasphemer who deserves to die. Jesus is saying, I'm standing before my Father defending you. And believe me, Jesus doesn't take cases that he will lose. That's why we sing that song, before the throne of God above. Jesus didn't finish all of his priestly work when he died on the cross. He continues to intercede for us. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 2 says that all of our spiritual sacrifices, and you all sing wonderfully, and I believe you really meant it from the heart, but you didn't mean it enough to earn the smile of God. You didn't. But Jesus, it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, all of our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable through Christ. He even cleans up our half-hearted worship and presents it as beautiful before the Father. And he prays for us continually. This is why Martin Luther said this, and I'll close with this quote. 
You should tell the devil, just by telling me that I'm a miserable, great sinner, you are placing a sword and weapon into my hand with which I can decisively overcome you. Yea, with your own weapon I can kill you and floor you. For if you tell me that I'm a poor sinner, I, on the other hand, can tell you that Christ died for sinners and is their intercessor. You remind me of the boundless, great faithfulness and benefaction of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The burden of my sins and all the trouble and misery that were to oppress me eternally, he very gladly took upon his shoulders and suffered the bitter death on the cross for them. To him I direct you, devil. You may accuse and condemn him. Let me rest in peace, for on his shoulders, not on mine, lie all my sins and all the sins of the world. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a a response hymn.